and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, episode 16, Quentin the Dragon Tamer and Outro. I'm Chloe, one of your hosts. You can find me on the internet as at Lizen Arbor on Twitter and Tumblr. And I'm Eliana, your other host, and you can find me on the internet as Glass Table Girl on the Maester Monthly Podcast and on the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit. Thank you so much for joining us. We are, as you know, at the end of Quentin's journey. Rip. 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 Uh, <laughs> I know, right? Uh, we have a couple of exciting things, though, that are going on this week. Yes. You know, some bad news, but mm-hmm. it'll only lead to good news in the long run. Yeah, you guys will totally be fine. Wait, wait down, down on the podcast. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I can undo. No, 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 it's too late. This is what we've become. Eliana's right. There are a ton of fun things coming. Yes, there's one disappointing thing, but we'll get over it. You guys will too. The good does not wash out the bad. The bad. (laughs) The good. (sighs) First up, we want to announce the giveaway winner. We've been uh, advertising the past couple weeks about doing a giveaway for Fire and Suds, Game of Thrones themed bath suds. They are newer on Twitter. Check them out at Fire and Suds. But we did pick a winner. The winner of this is going to get a Daenerys Drogon egg bath bomb and also Cersei's pot of wildfire. And drum roll, please, Aliana. That was really good. That was really good. Thank you, Aliana. You're doing great. Uh, the winner is Miss G M Garena on Twitter. So we will be getting in contact with you, uh, asking for an address for shipping. And we are so excited and happy for you that you won this. You deserve some wonderful fizzy bath bomb relaxation, a la Game of Thrones style. Ooh, it's kind of fun. <laughs> no, it's very fun. I was explaining what bath bombs are to my partner the other day and he was all like i've never heard of this and i was like well this is what it is he was like that's cool so it's very cool and and of course we have stickers uh we have many things available now on patreon and so as you all know we've soft launched that uh it hasn't actually started until september but you can pledge your swords to us now if you'd like on patreon um you'll notice that it says your pledges won't start happening after every creation but only once a month um it's just that in order to put a pause on it we had to set it to that for now but as a reminder everyone who pledges ten dollars or more by september 1st gets a Strong Belwas. Belwas deserve better sticker. Um, so far, number three is winning uh, based on votes that are on Patreon that reflect the ones in the Twitter poll we just had. So, Yeah, it's because number three is the best. I think number two is really the best. I mean, there, it works on a lot of levels. I'm just saying number <sighs> two. Eliana really loves <laughs> sticker number two because it's Strong Belwas is shitting over a corpse. You can't see the corpse, but it's there in your heart. And Strong Bellas is censored over his butt with Girls Gone Canon, which so that's a very that's very meta. And I do appreciate your best pick, 
my favorite is definitely the strong Belwis that has the locust in his hand and his other hand as a rock. And then the, the hearts and the girls gone cannon and the, it's just very good. So if you haven't checked that out, you should definitely jump onto our Twitter. You can scroll in our media and see those at girls gone cannon on twitter.com. Little plug there. If you're not following us, you definitely should be. You can watch Eliana and me talk to each other or ourselves. <laughs> I don't know. It could we could theoretically just have a conversation of only one of us with ourselves and no one would know. I mean, I think we've done that before. Probably. Do you want to tell them the bad news? All right. So the bad news is mom's leaving for a week. <laughs> I am going to Dragon Con next weekend in Atlanta, uh, Labor Day weekend. So if you're going to the con, hit us a tweet. Let me know. Uh, we can mm -hmm. say hi. We can wave. We can be nerdy together. I'll be hanging out with a lot of cool people. So excited for that. Hopefully it's one of our listeners or something. Who knows? But yeah. because of that, we're not going to have an episode next week. We're going to start our new point of view the week after next. We are, we are, and we are very excited for our next point of view chapter. It's going to be our first, our first female point of view character. Like, how did we go this long without it? I'm just been hating, hating. I know, you know, I can't believe it. We like, we went through Ned, we went through Barristan, we went through Quentin, and I think it's time to get a little, uh, a little mix up on here in these point of views. And this one's a fun one. In our next point of view chapter, when we come back on September 7th, we are starting with Ariane Martel. So we decided that we would make that jump from one Martel to obviously the other. And that way we can get back across the narrow sea. Yes. A little into the, the Game of Thrones once more. Yeah, we've spent a really long time out east, and I think it is begging for us to get out west to finally get a little more of the action. Uh, as much as we love our sad men that we've spent some time with. As much as we love those sad boys. We have spent a lot of time with sad boys. Yeah, I think we need some like spicy girls and some sad girls. Yeah, and I mean, there's just... We're going to talk about it a little today. We're going to definitely talk about it more on September 7th as to why... We feel that Ariane was a great choice to follow up Quentin. I mean, of course, yes, they're siblings, but Ariane's storyline is just so influenced by living in the shadow of Quentin, which, I mean, reading Quentin's chapters, I, I'm sure he would be just so surprised to hear that anyone was living in his shadow. Yeah, he felt like he was the shadow. Indeed. And... For all of our patrons, if you are spending $1 or more in our tiers, all notes will be up on September 1st from our shows. Uh, we have been uploading a couple at a time here and there, but they will all go live for you on the 1st. So if you want to see some of our salacious banter with each other or our silly puns or what didn't quite make it to the, to the end game of our podcast, what hit that cutting room floor... Make sure to subscribe if you are in our $1 tier or up. If you want to see our jokes or just us flirting with each other within We do a lot of flirting. Notes. We, we do do that. How much of that is, yeah. I encourage it. Yeah. 
So with that, we are going to stop right into our lightning round of the chapters that we missed. Uh, we're near the end of Quentin's storyline and the end of A Dance with Dragons. As we said, this last chapter is kind of near the end of the book. So we will go ahead and include other chapters, not just in the East. We start with the Griffin Reborn. John Connington, who is indeed still queer and still here, takes back his home and small keeps along Cape Wrath back with the help of the Golden Company. He thinks on Rhaegar and greets Aegon, planning to take over Storm's End, and Aegon wants to lead the attack. We head further north then with the sacrifice. Asha Greyjoy is a prisoner in Stannis Baratheon's camp, and the camp is hungrily drowning in the snows. She meets someone she thought was lost to her, and he remembers his name. One of the best moments in the whole book series. Okay. You have to remember your name. So good. In Victarion 1, Victarion burns seven Lysini bed slaves in a boat to give tribute to both the drowned and red god. Makoro reads the Valyrian glyphs on Dragonbinder to Victarion. I'm just like seeing Victarion singing I'm on a boat on oh, Lonely Island. Like now. That is him though. That, that is, is absolutely him. I'm on a boat and going <laughs> fast and <laughs> We should do that. We should make this parody. Oh, okay. I'm ready. I'm ready. Next we have the ugly little girl where Arya takes on her first face and is given her first target to kill. In Cersei 2, Cersei atones for her sins and finds a new glimmer of vengeance on the horizon. And then in Tyrion 12, Tyrion writes a new deal, written blood with Brown Ben Plum, joining up with the Second Sons and hatches a plan on how to get them to turn sides once more. In the Kingbreaker, you can tell how jaded I am about Barristan because no, just like, wait like y'all don't know what happened in the Kingbreaker. Like we literally just did this chapter with you guys. Don't don't make me do this. Barristan does some shit and he tries to confront Hisdar and then he kills Kraz and he goes to like imprison Hisdar. But surprise, all the dragons were just loosed on the city by some chump. I don't know if you ever heard of him. His name's Quentin Martell. I mean, also, he dies. I mean, does he? Stop! <laughs> I thought that was our thing now. God. <laughs> How could you do What a roller coaster of emotions. Which, of course, brings a step back to Quentin's chapters of the Dragon Tamer. Hellbent on stealing Daenerys' dragons, Quentin finds himself quite literally in hell. And also Daenerys' bed. Leaking juice is oh all God. over. A mood. Quentin juice. <laughs> Quen- quench your thirst. We open the dragon tamer to time passing. It's the hour of the bat, the hour of the eel, to the hour of the ghosts, which part of me initially is like, they're just making this up now, right? Like these names are just being made up. But if you take a minute to go over the hours kind of in a row of what we've learned, they... We've been seeing them a lot in these recent Essos chapters, but these are also littered throughout other chapters and books. Most of the Hour of the mentions are in A Dance with Dragons, which, as Eliana referred to a while ago, is interesting with the idea of a time for wolves and the Hour of the Wolves. 
You can find mentions of these in A Dance with Dragons, Dragon Tamer, Wayward Bride, Kingbreaker, Ghost in Winterfell, John 2, John 12, and Cersei 1, in The Princess and the Queen, and in A Feast for Crows, Cersei 7, and Jamie 1. And I found it interesting when you look kind of back on it that there's the Hour of the Bat, which is deep night or early morning. There's the Hour of the Eel, which is right after the Hour of the Bat. There's Ghosts, which comes after Hour of the Eel. There's the Owl a few hours after the Bat, but before dawn. And then there's the Hour of the Wolf, the blackest part of night after the Owl. And of course, there's the Nightingale, which comes after the Wolf, which I would guess would be morning-ish. You know, this is all like eight hours, I feel like. Well, I guess it's yeah. like one, two, three, four. It's five hours. I mean, six, that's a pretty solid hours. chunk. Yeah. It's a solid chunk. There are definitely like other other hours and we'll figure them out at some point. Yeah. Anyone, I know we missed our chance because we didn't think this through before Worldcon. But next time you have a chance to ask George R. R. Martin questions, please ask him, what are all of the other hours? Because now... I'm emotionally invested into this. We're going to make a personality quiz about which hour you are. Um, and also, this ties into some of the past Quentin chapters, like this this idea of the passage of time, like the spurn suitor starts with, it was the hour of the ghosts. Like, okay. Quentin finds himself lying in bed, driven to anguish with thoughts of fire and blood, unable to sleep. He pours himself a cup of wine in the dark, trying to convince himself it will help him sleep, which, like, I get that. Same. Yeah, I've definitely done that before. Which turns out is kind of counterintuitive, maybe. I mean, like, the passing out. Passing out helps. Mm -hmm. But turns out being drunk actually gives you a less good quality of sleep. It's something like you don't get quite as good of, like, REM sleep or something, which can leave you feeling more tired and this is just a fun health fact for me not that it's ever stopped me from drinking before bed before (laughs) (laughs) so on top of quentin's self-destructive behavior he like lowers the flame touching it to his flesh and he starts like crying out in pain which jairus is creeping around on him and shows up in his room which that kind of just sounds like he was cheating on him which yeah Yeah. same boyfriends but shows up in his room because, like, he hears Quentin writhing around noisily in his chambers. And Jairus is like, yo, like, what the fuck? Is this your kink? Like, he's, like, just pouring hot wax on himself and flame on himself? Like, this what you into, Quint? This what you about? I understand the playing with the wax part. It's like, who hasn't, like, used to, like, stick their fingers in, like, the candle and just make little balls of wax? Because you're right, like, right. whatever, this is fun. You're like, this is fun now. <laughs> like, I don't have toys i guess and then but yeah i did have a similar thought that jurors was like what's going on here i kind of wonder if like danny's um maids were also like what what's she doing by sacrificing babies does some like other weird stuff too killing killing yeah virgins I mean, probably yeah witch shit bathing in their <laughs> blood you know the use I also just love the progression of Quentin's actions in that sentence of like, the prince lay abed, staring at the ceiling, dreaming without sleeping, remembering, imagining, twisting beneath his linen coverlet. What a word, coverlet. His mind feverish with thoughts of fire and blood. And like, I don't know, that progression to twisting, you know, with that imagining and feverish. He, it, it sounds like he's kind of ill, 
but also some of that language feels very passionate like you know when you're like tossing and turning in bed thinking about someone that you love or like are into or something which like i guess quentin's not he's real nervous but same same death fire passion you know it reminds me of that language that we hear in melisandre one that that represents john and danny banging it out shadows in the shape of skulls skulls that turn to mist bodies locked together in lust Writhing and rolling and clawing through curtains of fire, great winged shadows wheeled against a hard blue sky. Yeah, the hard blue sky. Hard blue sky. More like a hard blue ice schlong. Oh yeah. Quentin, are you mad? No, just scared. I do not want to burn. Oh my god, is that your baby Quentin voice? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I don't know. Wow, my son. Um, I'll be honest, my son. That, it makes me think of this chapter of Daenerys 1 in A Game of Thrones when they're talking to Illyrio and Viserys and Danny are there and uh, there's this line where Viserys says, The realm will rise for its rightful king. Tyrell, Redwine, Derry, Greyjoy, they have no more love for the usurper than I do. The Dornish men burn to avenge Elia and her children. Which, like, meta. Super meta. The Dornish men burn to avenge Elia and her children. They do. Mo- mostly, like, in the present day to yeah. avenge Oberyn, of course. But, like, the Oberyn thing happens because of Elia and her children. Like, the Dornish haven't forgotten. It's all one thing. <sighs> A mildly spicy take. Kind of, like... I like the way that Jorah line is written, sure, of like, oh, you know, the small folk don't care. They pray for, like, I don't know, good rain or whatever. But, like, Jorah's wrong. Jorah was wrong. The Dornish do care. Mm-hmm. Also, this question where Jairus, like, asks Quentin if he's mad. You know, like, it's interesting that Quentin's being asked that because madness is such a strong theme in Danny's storyline. She's also always questioning herself if she's mad and how far is that line between madness and greatness but she like quentin you know they, they're all just scared little children trying to make their way in the world oh absolutely and with that line from jorah and the small folk i mean and the dornish caring we're gonna see that come the rem chapter where she goes to sunspear and i mean the people mm-hmm. love her all of the people not just you know the high court in dorn not just them it's all the people are you know saying hello princess Ariane. i mean she is a public figure, and that's super important of what keeps these places afloat. Yeah. Jairus offers jokingly to get Quent a woman from the Temple of the Graces, and he exclaims that only the Red Graces fuck out of the different graces there are. There's just like a ton of exposition on the religious factions here and how the Westerosi did how the Westerosi old septas are prunes and that the religious order in the East is so much different. When it rains, instead of the workers running indoors, there are actually snuggeries in the pleasure gardens, and they wait there until they're chosen by a man. Those who are chosen must remain until the sun comes up. They're feeling lonely and neglected. We could console them. Which, like, that's not how sex work works. Like, fuck off, Jairus, you piece of fucking fried baloney. <laughs> Which is, I think, one of the top tier insults. That we've had so far on this show. 
I still like glorified houseplant, but fucking fried bologna might be good too. I like fried. I like. I like the idea of this fucking fried bologna. Like, I don't know if I like the idea of like a fried bologna. Anyway, so <laughs> it's good. It's good. We're gonna we're gonna like have a more hashtag nuanced take on Jerris as this goes though. Like for example. You know, like, Jairus is basically trying to persuade Quentin to fuck someone because, I mean, Jairus isn't wrong that, like, Danny isn't the only woman in the world. I don't think that, like, the way Jairus goes about it is right. But, like, you know, like, Quentin is on a suicide mission. He's like, what if you didn't die a virgin? Yeah. But also, like, damn. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I swear that I will have a nicer, more nuanced take on Jairus by the end of this ish. In fact, there'll be a lot of nuance. He's got layers, we were discussing. Yeah, like an onion. Yeah, three-dimensional character. All of the dimensions. (gasps) Yeah, like, it's not just one slice of bologna, you know? It's a whole... He's like the whole package, but it's fried, all of yeah, it. Yeah, it's a whole log of bologna, you know? It's, that's, a log. that's in 3D. Jairus it's not just drink the 2D. water, you fucking log of bologna. <laughs> okay. Quentin did not want to die at all. I want to go back to Ironwood and kiss both of your sisters. Marry Gwyneth Ironwood, watch her flower into beauty, have a child by her. I want to ride in tourneys, hawk, and hunt, visit with my mother in Norvos, Read some of those books my father sends me. I want Cletus and Will and Master Kedry to be alive again. If we have Quentin here thinking on how he doesn't really want to go through with this mission, and he just wants to go home. He should. Go home, Quentin. Quentin tries to get Jairus off his back, being like, Danny doesn't want me sleeping with sex workers. She's not going to be glad to hear about that. And Jairus is just like... I don't know, dude. She might be. <laughs> He's not... I mean, Jairus isn't exactly right. But I don't think Quentin's really right either. Like, Quentin's projecting some things onto Danny. Like, I think... I don't know. Does Quentin want... I guess he does. Like, based on what he's just told us he wants. He, like, wants to watch Gwyneth Ironwood flower into beauty and have a child by her. I guess Quentin wants his bride to come to his bed, a virgin. But it's like, Danny's not really... That's not a thing she's really hoping for, I guess. Um, yeah. I don't think Danny gives a shit who you sleep with, to be quite honest. And she's been sleeping with that good dick Dario. And obviously he didn't become good dick Dario by being a pure angel, just saying. Right, like, Quentin wants, he doesn't want Daenerys. He wants the idea of her, and he wants to not disappoint his father, is what Quentin wants. He... He doesn't want Daenerys. He wants an innocent romance and he wants love, which is something that I know you have a lot of opinions on and we'll get into later is how he is like his father. And it's like Doran. Doran married for love, which we're about to get into here, that it it, it doesn't always work that way. Quentin thinks he felt like a boy standing before Daenerys pleading for her hand. Which, of course, kill the boy and let the man be born. Quentin is unable to do that. And not that it did John much good. I mean, Quentin kills the boy, obviously. Quentin says Danny already has a paramour anyway, and that he still has a chance because Daenerys doesn't love his dar. Jairus then chastises him, saying that Quentin, as 
you know, you said Quentin should know better about love having anything to do with marriage, which leads into some exposition about Doran and Melario's marriage. What has love to do with marriage? A prince should know better. Your father married for love, it said. How much joy has he had of that? Little and less. Doran Martell and his Nervoshi wife had spent half their marriage apart and the other half arguing. It was the only rash thing his father had ever done to hear some tell it. The only time he had followed his heart instead of his head, and he had lived to rue it. Not all risks lead to ruin, he insisted. This is my duty. My destiny. You're supposed to be my friend, Jairus. Why must you mock my hopes? I have doubts enough without your throwing oil on the fire of my fear. This will be my grand adventure. <laughs> fucking psychopath. Quentin's <laughs> a fucking sociopath. Jesus. I don't understand why you won't let me steal a dragon. <laughs> why won't you just support me? It's not a phase, Jairus. Why can't you just stand me hardcore? That you are my boy. <laughs> yes. You're supposed to be my boy. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, that's exactly what's going on here. <laughs> what is happening today on this podcast? Uh, this this passage brings up something else great. Uh, so speak Martin from the Citadel on Westeros.org where a fan asked if Doran and Melario had discussed the reasons for why he wanted to send his children away, why did she leave? To which George responded, It wasn't a good marriage. They married because of an attraction to something new and exotic. Sometimes attraction happens when you least expect it. He was a prince of a distant country, and she a woman full of life, who was very appealing, who came from a very different culture. When she comes to Dorne, she finds there are customs that are different from those of Norvos, especially regarding the fostering away of children to others. This wasn't a political marriage, nor a magical one. It was simply an example of human nature. Sometimes relationships start out on a good foot. You become acquainted, there's a great sexual attraction, you establish a relationship, you marry, and then in four or five years you realize you don't really have anything in common, that at best you've made a mistake and are in a situation that doesn't have any easy solution in a society such as that of the Seven Kingdoms where divorce simply isn't common. This is an example that it's not only marriages of convenience that fail, but even the marriages for love can fail. Sometimes the marriages of convenience in the Seven Kingdoms come out well, and those that are for love don't. Sometimes a couple loves another, and then at some point they don't. There are marriages that also develop out of nothing more than lust. There's no guarantee things will go well, and the consequence of this is that disappointments develop and you end up estranged, each person going their own way. There's some bitterness from Malario about this, because as Prince of Doran, Doran has been able to stay with his children, and she has had to leave them. I feel like I'm not going to really dig into it, but there's like a lot in here that I'm like, so tell us what you really feel, <laughs> George, oh, about yeah. your relationships and life. There's so much like... I'm like, damn, George, tell us more. Like, this is... There's so much... And there's so much in here to take apart, like in the actual story too that i'm sure yeah like i mean of course there were a couple lines that i was like oh george what does that mean uh like like attraction happening and how 
oh, some marriages are nothing more than lust, some are nothing more than this, and then there's even the fact that he has put enough of this thought into Melario's bitterness that gives me, like, yeah, he can't name the unnamed Dornish princess, but at least he's characterizing that Melario had bitterness and why she was bitter and how it kind of happened. I think that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it just definitely feels like he's pulling from something that... Yeah, real life. Yeah, but... Real pain, bro. But yeah, and it's it's a fun contrast to Ned and Catelyn. That's also another thing that I was thinking about because of this idea of, like, different culture. It's not as far away, sure, mm-hmm. the north from River Run, but, like, Catelyn had some of that culture mm-hmm. shock, and she talks about having to adjust, and she didn't marry for love. She was just like... Well, this is my life now. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think this is a great SSM. There's a lot in there, and it, it, it does a lot to explain it. And then, of course, there's the fact that I Tris just isn't mocking you, Quentin. He's trying to save your life. <laughs> which is why his next line immediately in response to that is like, Men die on grand adventures. But, of course, Quentin still thinks that he's living in a story, and, like, I mean, Quentin thinks in response to what Jerry says, He was not wrong. That was in the stories, too. The hero sets out with his friends and companions, faces dangers, comes home triumphant. Only some of his opinions don't return at all. The hero never dies, though. I must be the hero. And, of course, like, we know what the last hero that's not always what happens like not every hero is concrete and made that way and like hey the last hero lost his friends and his sword broke and then he died you know i mean that's not just because you're the hero doesn't always mean it's like the stories quentin for sure and like yeah of course like this is such a great meta of like the hero's uh journey slash the monomyth in many ways and you can see how Quentin has grown up with those stories, like The Last Hero. Same as, like, the Stark Children, and how this is just prevalent, and how many people are patterning their lives off of it, so. I also think, in testament to that, like, it, it's interesting that we have these Prince stories all going on at the same time in A Dance with Dragons. You have Jon Snow, you have Aegon, you have Quentin mm-hmm. all on these heroes' paths. Uh, poor Quentin and Nobody Suspects the Butterfly from ASWAF University did a really great panel on the reader as characters at Ice and Firecon in 2017. I know you were there. Uh, basically on how there's a difference in disillusionments and how there's a difference in Sansa and Quentin's, for example, that Sansa's story is the metatheatrical center of the series versus Quentin's disillusionment entering farther into his story where Sansa's finally begins to lift. Quentin goes through his arc off the pages and he reaches his true true traumas off page where we are made to suffer Sansa's arc. As Butterfly said, Sansa has her there are no heroes moment where Quentin has his oh, I'm not the hero moment, which is a total inversion of Sansa's arc. And is like significantly shorter. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah it was a really good panel. I was trashed. But it was good. <laughs> I didn't go, but I read the notes, so. <laughs> it was really good. I, I, I remember can't being remember. impressed. I was doing something. I was getting ready. I think that was the Manimals concert that night, so I think I was getting stuff ready for that on staff. I had a flask. <laughs> what am I going to do with you? 
Um, Quentin says that people will remember them and insists that Danny lives. He says Danny is lost, but he'll find her. And when I do, she will look at me the way she looks at her sword. Once I have proven myself worthy of her. Quint. I know. Baby boy. Baby boy. It's not how it Baby works. Baby boy. It's fine. He doesn't even really want her, but he, like, wants her to, like, he just, like, wants that approval so much. He's like, she'll look at me the same way. Someone love me. And I know. I love you, Quentin. Jairus loves him. Yeah, that's true. I ship it. And we've, like, kind of hammered home a lot of the ways that, like, Quentin, you know, mistakes himself for the hero of the story, and a lot of people have written about this. But I think there's kind of something else that's going on here. Like, the Tyrion chapters are really good at pointing this out. And even though Tyrion hasn't met Danny yet at this point in the story, he gets, he just totally gets her character and who she is right in many ways. Like, that Danny has suffered and that she had the kind of childhood she did where she was like penniless and homeless. And she has come out on top after a while and like and because of that that makes her a very proud queen and how can she not be after everything that she's been through quentin's mistake it's more than just thinking that he's the hero of the story it's that he makes the mistake of thinking that danny after everything she's been through is the prize of his story along with the dragons like despite dorn being more progressive regarding sexuality and like the inheritance that women can inherit Quentin still very much grows up with these patriarchally centered stories like The Last Hero. You know, our protagonist in like The Last Hero, in The Prince That Was Promised, the mistake that like, you know, is called into question uh, by Eamon or like Azora High and stuff, you know, it, it still assumes that a man is at the center of these stories and thus Quentin fails to fathom that perhaps Daenerys is very much her own hero in her story she doesn't need quentin like she lives she hasn't died um and it's not because she needs quentin to find her and show her the way but it's because she's finding herself as we see in the last in her last chapter right when she has her mufasa and the stars moment with quaith and viserys and jorah yeah the best i mean it's the best cast you can ask for Absolutely. She just can't wait to be queen. She already is queen. I was waiting for the whole song. I was like, did she really write this whole thing already? <laughs> I was prepared. I was prepared to jam out. Jairus continues to try to tell Quentin that this is a dumb idea, even if you get a dragon and ride one. Upset at his friend's remarks, Quentin dismisses him, then thinks upon his regrets. I should have kissed one of the Drinkwater twins, or maybe both of them. I should have kissed them whilst I could. I should have gone to Norvos to see my mother and the place that gave her birth so she would know that I had not forgotten her. It's not too late. You can, you can go back and do all of these things. Oh my god. Rain comes down in Meereen, and it reminds me of some of those, like, King's Landing chapters when like shitty things were happening in Ned's chapters and it was raining. <laughs> it's also interesting because this rain is finally catching up with us in Marine. When we read the Barristan chapters, they were talking about this rain and how they wanted it to break. So I thought that was cool that it's another passage of time between POVs. Quentin and his friends eat a very simple breakfast. 
They make sure not to have mimosas with their brunch oh because they're going to drink afterwards after they get these dragons. Yeah, which is going to happen. Yeah. Right? Totally. Yeah. I can't wait to see Quentin toast after. ride a dragon. And you? This is Bloody Mary, all right. The big man knew it would rain, and he warns that fire and water do not mix. But if love and hate can breed, so can fire and water. Totally doesn't have the same ring, so I get it. And a song of water and ice totally doesn't work either, or water and fire. It just doesn't doesn't work. It really doesn't. I don't really want to go into this. Never mind. Just go, go ahead. They think on historical figures past failures, and Quentin says that they do not understand. They may be Dornish, but I am Dorn. Years from now, when I am dead, this will be the song they sing of me. But, like, what if this doesn't end the way you think it's gonna end, Quentin? What if you don't die years from now? And I have a song, I have a song lyric for this. It's like, I'm just a notch in your bedpost, but you're just a line in a song. Oh my God. That's what Quentin is. He's just a line in a song. It was a good song. Leave him be. Be nice to our this song. It's still a good song. Though, this line does bug me because it's just, like, very ignorant thinking and he's just not, he, you know, he's just really not thinking. And it kind of reminds me of a quote that we'll get in Queenmaker in A Feast for Crows. That is Nymeria's star burning bright, and that milky band behind her, those are 10,000 ships. She burned as bright as any man, and so shall I. You will not rob me of my birthright. So the Martells can get a tiny bit self-righteous here and there. I know we'll talk about it more in future episodes, but that just struck me as a great little parallel of that line. Yeah, and like him with his destiny. The Martells, for some reason, like, there's a sense of entitlement. I bet Oberyn was thinking this to himself when he was like, dying well when he was fighting the mountain and especially you know because he almost won he's like i yes my destiny i'm gonna win their pride their pride is what affects them they really do have an issue with that i feel like and it's kind of overlooked yeah they're just very sure of themselves for some reason i mean i would probably be that proud as well had i lost so much and remained so you know hardened but it's still definitely an issue and causes major blind spots for them. Yeah, for sure. Next, we have Quentin and his crew getting dressed as the Brazen Beasts. They are a bull, a lion, and an ape. And Archibald, okay, because of Chloe's fantastic insight oh. in our first Quentin episode, Archibald now reminds me even more of a Baratheon because he takes the bull helm like Gendry and like Chloe pointed that out. Yeah, just like with Robert's uh, antlers and how Gendry ended up doing the bullhorns instead, but mm -hmm. yeah. Plus, like, they're big and they got hammers and stuff. Yep. Yeah. Baratheon as hell. Baratheon as hell. So smart. Um, today's password apparently is dog. <laughs> supposedly. Apparently. Quentin has decided that he's going to carry around a whip now because Danny used one on Drogon and he's like, this worked for her. It's going to work for me. I also want to take a moment to stop and admire some of George's writing because we're not dwelling that much on it in this chapter, but like we should because the writing and the prose in this chapter is just so good in the same way that it's very good in The Windblown. 
So, the walls around them were made of bricks of half a hundred colors, but the shadows turned them all to gray until touched by the light of the torch that Jairus carried. So good. It's a lot like how in King's Landing with the rain in a way, how the red, the pink stone turned to red, uh, that once light leaves and light is draining out of it, it turns to dark. I just thought that was a nice little, little tidbit. We got some world building about the pyramids that these gates were once used by slaves delivering things from tradesmen. We're going to get so much more exposition in Daenerys chapters someday. It's crazy to think how expansive this pyramid really is. There are huge sections, the apex, the hall, the heart, the base, the dragon pit, and then the dungeons. There are actually 33 levels, which they copied off of old Geese's pyramids, and it's a sacred number to the Geese gods. I didn't know that. That's fun. Yeah, I thought it was fun. I'm excited to get to those more in detail. Uh, They also come across some more brazen beasts who are guarding the door. There's a rat and then a fox. I don't know if it means anything, but I like it. It's fun. Uh, They use the password dog. And it works, I guess. There's like a moment of hesitation where they look at each other and they're like, all right. Which kind of makes me wonder, like, do you think that these guys were like, fuck it, it's not the right password, but I just don't feel like working anymore. Yeah, pretty much. I feel like shit in Marine is kind of just going downhill, so no one gives a fuck right now. Yeah. They have this cool cart full of oxen and dead sheep. Also, pretty Maris, who says the rest of the Tattered Prince's folk are inside, including Cago Corpse Killer, which they apparently were thinking they would use to hold a dragon. Amateur hour over here. We get dragon lore, where we learn Rhaegal and Viserion are smaller than Drogon because they are kept in a container like goldfish, which... We also hear about that happening to the Targaryen dragons mm-hmm. in King's Landing. As they enter and really get into the pyramid and all this stuff, Quentin says that his palms are sweaty and his knees weak, his arms are heavy, and mom's spaghetti. We also think, he also thinks that he's ready for the guards before they get to the dragon pit, but he's he's really not. He's not ready for them at all. Like, Jairus tells them, we've gotta be ready for these guards, and, like, he is a fuckboy, but as we've seen in the past few chapters, somehow Jairus is the only one who is holding together all of these plans. He's the only one who's thinking, like, guys, we have plans. Let's try and be prepared and actually do them. Archibald says that they're ready. Maybe Archibald's ready, but I don't know if Quentin Martell is, because Quentin Martell is channeling a really big mood here. (laughs) There was a cramp in Quentin's belly. He felt a sudden need to move his bowels, but knew he dare not beg off now. And like, I get it. This has happened to me. Stress shits are a thing. I will attest to the fact that this is a real phenomenon. This feeling that Quentin is feeling is very real. Oh yeah, this is Mm -hmm. very realistic. Mm -hmm. George really knows how to cater to his people. As they embark, Quentin then thinks he had seldom felt more like a boy. And as we said earlier, it's a running theme throughout this entire story of A Song of Ice and Fire with all of these adolescent characters. You have John's Kill the Boy, but you also have Danny thinking... a, A mantra throughout her chapters is like that I am just a young girl, but she really finally accepts that in her last chapter she is like i am just a young girl and there's just so much weight on the shoulders of all of these children the pseudo hero idea supported with quentin really is in the end he's just a boy not a hero 
magical heroes survive what he survived or similar instances where it's pretty improbable they would survive in other circumstances. You know, like being stabbed to death by your comrades of the Night's Watch. Quentin is not that hero. In the end, he's just a frog, not a prince. Perfectly said. Thanks, babe. They finally get to the door by the dragon pit. All of the brazen beasts are wearing locust masks. Ugh, it's so dumb. <laughs> I think it's kind of fun. It's kind of fun, but it's like, uh, it's just like when they were on the stilts with the feather boas. I mean, that didn't happen, but it did in my head. His mask was wrought in the shape of a basilisk's head. The other three were masked as insects. Locusts, Quentin realized. Dog, he said. <laughs> I'm so mad. I'm so mad. Like, it was right there. It was right in front of you. You know that feeling in Mulan when Mushu, like, is yelling at Mulan, like, right after she sets it off. I mean, Mulan ended up being right. Quentin was wrong. Well, he's like, he was right there. He was right in front of you and you missed. But, like, anyway, he was staring him in the face and Quentin said dog. Locust, Quentin realized. Dog! He said. Oh my god. That was a pretty dumb moment, Quint. This is just perfectly written. Locust. Like, reading that out loud is just like... Oh my god. The last two men in Quentin's party have grown throughout their journeys. The brazen beasts suddenly start moving toward Quentin. Quentin is still frozen. He hasn't even unsheathed his blade by the time Archibald has thrown a torch and defended his prince. He's too busy being shell-shocked by the sergeant dying in front of him. Jairus saves Quentin from a spear to the throat. Quentin, go home. It's, Holy shit. It's like still not too late at this point. Right, you still have time. Cago and Maris come to get them. While, like, I guess Archibald and Jairus are here actually responding to things happening. Quentin is just over here, just like fucking muttering shit like to himself. He's like, Dog, Quentin said. The day's word was supposed to be dog. Why wouldn't they let us pass? We were told. I'm like, lo Locus. Anyways, this just tells us a lot about Quentin, though. He ends up getting too fixed on this, like, one thing, on how things are supposed to be. And because of that, he can't react right in the moment. Yeah. Locus, he thought. Dogs, dog, he said. I'm never gonna get over that quote, dude, ever. I'm gonna text it to you every day. It's the most perfectly written line. I mean it's one of, it's it's up there, I think. I'm gonna I'm throwing that in my top ten of lines. I don't know what else is in there, but that's in the top ten now. Right, like that's gonna be number one right next to uh, you know, like taste of dreams, a taste of innocence. Yeah. Like it's it's up there it's up there with the from porcelain to ivory. My skin is turned from porcelain to ivory to steel. We have right, that. or like promise me she cried in a room that smelled of blood and roses or Yeah, we have those and we also have Locus Quentin realized dog, he said. Fuck. Fuck <laughs> <laughs> And then Quentin's all like, Why did these men have to die? And Quentin's just like unsure and suddenly cannot relate to his father's plans. He whispers to himself, fired blood, like that's the reason they came to Marine. And also, apparently, they get to this door, and they don't have a key, and Archibald, bless him, he's like, I have a key, and he takes his hammer and just starts smashing at the lock. 
A great moment to talk about how much I love the big man, Archibald, the best character left. Just smashed him with his hammer. I love him. They do call him the big man. Like, for the first time we see him in this chapter, they call him the big man. Yeah, they call him that last chapter, too. Remember? I I was really excited. I know. It's so funny. I love the big man. Like, I'm really glad we haven't had to see him die. I don't think he will. I don't think he's going to die. He better not. He's endgame. Archibald is Azora High. You want to make a tinfoil that Archibald is a Baratheon bastard? Because, like... Oh my god. I mean, it's already better than half the stuff I've read or watched. It's so true. Robert fucked, dude. He fucked. He he really did. He really, did. You know who else fucked? Dunk. Dunk fucked. That's true. Also, Dario. Good dick, Dario. Dario definitely fucked. Mm -hmm. Anyways... The rusted hinges screamed is the language we get of the door opening, which never means good things. See Aaron Dampere chapters. As they answer, the language becomes suspenseful and horrific. Quentin thinks, why else would Daenerys have shown me the dragons? Mm. She wants me to prove myself to her. And I'm like, Quentin, you are idiots. He's so dumb. Dog, he said. (laughs) Fuck. (laughs) Locust, he thought. I'm never gonna get over this, okay? Ever. Now that I've, like, read that line aloud, I'm like, this is it. (laughs) I want it tattooed on me. (laughs) Christ. We're having a panel now at Ice and Fire Con. Um, It's just Mm -hmm. us saying over and over again, Locust, he realized. (laughs) Dog, he said. That's it. Yep, I'm in. That's it. Um... Yeah, so he thinks that Danny wants uh, Quentin to prove himself to her, and this is again Quentin just projecting things onto Daenerys. Like, I'm sorry, Quentin. She just I'm gonna throw this out there. She definitely does not want you stealing her dragons, dude. She like, I mean, Danny just doesn't give a fuck about like what you're doing and like why you're here. She has a bunch of other issues right now that she has to deal with, like, oh disease her people dying i'm on a dragon and in the middle of nowhere and like you're over here and you're just trying to steal her fucking dog i think that's fucked up like what are you doing he's just projecting all of his daddy issues about how daddy doesn't like think i'm good enough and wanting to prove yourself to him onto danny just typical shit typical (laughs) dog Locusts! Christ. Master them, as Daenerys mastered Drogon in the pit. The girl had been alone, clad in wisps of silk, but fearless. I must not be afraid. She did it, so can I. The main thing was to show no fear. Animals can smell fear. And dragons? What did he know of dragons? What does any man know of dragons? They've been gone from the world for more than a century. What does any man know of dragons? Danny's like the last dragon. It's almost as if this line's like about Danny. I don't know. And he thinks that just because Danny did it with Drogon and taming him, so so can he. So can Quint for sure. Which it's also shitty because it's like, oh, that little girl could do it. I could do it mentality. These chapters have honestly, like, they've been written from a young man's perspective surrounded by other young men. And I don't know. They're just really interesting to read from. Some of the shit I just shake my head and go, the fuck? Yeah, what? Excuse me? I'm like, not Quentin as much. Like, I get him, but Jairus sometimes will say shit. Yeah. And I'm like, dude, look, I know you got layers now, but the fuck? 
Yeah. Just want to, there's so many gifts that you just want to like send at them all the time. Mm-hmm. We have more brick imagery because I like I like these. Wall and floor and ceiling drank the light. Scorched, he realized. Bricks burned black, crumbling into ash. Which I guess tells us that the dragons are here. Uh, mm-hmm. First, Quentin sees Rhaegal, who has gorgeous bronze eyes. Also, Rhaegal is long and green like Snake. Mm-hmm. And Quentin attempts to call Rhaegal's name. And instead, the word that's used is he croaks it out. So Quentin feels himself becoming frog again. And like he's just using this language of becoming a frog again. And life is not a song. He throws Rhaegal some treats of, I don't know, like giant dead animals. And Archibald reminds... <laughs> I know, right? And, and they grill them, you know? Like, Archibald reminds Quentin that there are, in fact, not one, but two dogs. And so you have to <laughs> save some of the treats for the that other one. Quentin's like, oh yeah. Because he forgot. And so he looks around and finds the little cave that Viserion has made. And Viserion is also long like Snick, so... <laughs> Quentin says more meat to try and feed them until they are sluggish, because that's what Daenerys did to slow them down. Jairus is making a last-ditch effort to tell his friend, this ain't gonna work. Loyal bitches, though, like, this is Jairus Drinkwater, who led his friends into the Red Mountains to find the lair of the vulture, who jumped into playing a lordly wine merchant to help his friend, like, fended off corsairs to protect his friend with Arch, told him to stay close to them, to stay out of line of battle, and... Jairus Drinkwater is telling you to go home, Quentin. It's what he's been saying this entire chapter. And, like, Quentin, because he's just so insecure, he thinks that Jairus is negging him. And it's like, no, Jairus is not negging you. He's begging you to just live, like, live your life. Go, go, don't, don't be like Cletus. You know, he's saying, like, Cletus is never, he's dead. Yeah. Yeah live for the life that he lost, you know? Like, make it good for that reason. Yeah, exactly. In a way, it kind of gives me similar vibes to Rhaegar's obsession with prophecy ending him, and something that people like Drink don't have that same obsession with power or prophecy and destiny. Like, Drinkwater isn't a high lord. He's better off than most, of course, probably, but... He's in a nice, wealthy court. He doesn't have to worry about stressors imposed on him to impress his dad, though. He's already doing great, probably, for himself. He doesn't have a ton to live up to outside his station like Quentin does. Drink brings Quentin the perspective of, there are more important things. You can go home and kiss a girl and drink wine. You don't need this. You don't need to help your dad with his poorly planned revenge scheme. And Quentin believes he was born for it. Like poor Quentin and Butterfly said earlier, he is going further and deeper into his disillusionment. And then we get Viserion, who's now, interestingly, he's like sniffing at Pretty Maris. And he's able to tell that Pretty Maris is female, which means that the dragons are looking for Daenerys because they are confused as to why she's not here right now with everyone, which like, same. Mm-hmm, same. The dragon knew his name. Quentin tries to give this dragon commands, like, down. Just go home and get yourself a dog. You'll be better for it, Quent. You can get a dog and hang out with Gwyneth Ironwood. Yeah, exactly. be so pleased. Viserion starts inching towards the guards, smelling blood, 
and they freak out for obvious reasons, as we see in the pit with Daenerys, and shoot a crossbow at the dragons. And of course, chaos erupts. Another line that I love, because again, there's so much great prose in this chapter. As he dropped his weapon to try and pry apart the Syrian's jaws, flame gouted from the tiger's mouth. The man's eyes burst with soft popping sounds, and the brass <sighs> around them began to run. <sighs> and just, I'm gonna gush again. So, like, the Dragon Tamer is just such a good, just such a well-written chapter. Like, the Windblown was also really good. Sprint Suitor and Merchant's Man, they're like, all right, they're they're not on the same level of language and prose as these as like the windblown and the dragon tamer and throughout this chapter george has just really been using a lot of imagery that appeals to all five of your senses which is absolutely necessary for keeping your audiences engaged when it comes to like that psychology of why storytelling works and what makes it so effective but i just i just love that small visceral detail it it's just so tiny but like the soft popping sounds of the eyes it makes it so much more horrific like just you're not just imagining eyeballs popping you're hearing it yeah and it's like there's just such a contrast i think to the horror of it and that idea of it's just a soft pop anyways it here's me catching feels over exploding eyeballs so no i mean a dance with dragons and a feast with crows are big testaments to george's skill with prose and to his world building and to just him writing just him doing his thing you know it's not all about the tinfoil theories that are posted every day online. It's it, sometimes it's about George describing food for three pages and it's like you're there and you're eating it yourself. And then you're really mad because you're not there and you're not actually eating it yourself. But I digress. But I don't you, digest, but I do digress. You could pick yourself up uh, a feast of ice and fire. Yeah. And be eating some of it yourself. I like to make made like a couple of times the some of the biscuit ones they're super easy to make and i'm like oh i have these ingredients this is cheap yeah quentin tries to regain control over the situation which i don't even know if regains the word we should be using here maybe get a semblance of control maybe yeah maybe just gain <laughs> gain at all gains yeah gains bro uh, quentin uncoils the whip and he starts calling the white doggo's name so he shouts, down, down. And he tries not to show fear and then whips Viserion. And then Green Doggo Wriggle is like, oh, hell no. You are not whipping. You are not whipping Viserion. Jairus, no, not Jairus, sorry. Archibald is now like freaking out and is yelling, behind you, behind you, behind you. And like, oh, no, it turns out, I mean, we've been calling them doggos these, this whole time, but they are not doggos. They are dragons. And Quentin forgot about Rhaegal and then Rip. When he raised his whip, he saw that the lash was burning. His hand as well. All of him. All of him was burning. Oh, he thought. Then he began to scream. Ugh, that's like the most bone-chilling line, too. Oh. It's just like Quentin also, since it's like his perspective, he's like a step behind every time, you know, until like the things are happening. Oh, the lash is burning and now my hand. Like, what? God, my poor son, dude. Indeed. The son's son. That line is so sad. Dog. Sorry. <laughs> Locusts. Fuck. Okay. 
Okay, my dumb sad he son is, is what that I is what he is. He's a good son. He's a good dumb sad dead son. Dead son. <laughs> dead. He's so dead, dude. We just killed Quentin. Uh and that that brings us now to our outro. Let's talk about let's talk about Quentin, you know? Let's talk about his death. Let's talk about his life and Quentin, our poor, sad, dumb, dead, something else, son. So dead, dude. He's. I'm. I'm really excited on the positive side because this will transition really well into doing Ariane. So high five us. It's really good transitionally how George lines that up too, uh, and of course, so the Ironwoods have sided with the Blackfires in the past in wars. Which makes, even if he isn't a Blackfire, which he is, the Aegon and Golden <laughs> Company crew, all the more likely to ally with Doran and Fam. You know, uh, in a way, which I know uh, Brendan B. Fish might not love this one because cool. he seems to have a different opinion for this parallel. And I'm not saying it's perfect, but I did just like the parallel that Jairus is basically the Kristen Cole in Quentin's plotline, the Kingmaker in this situation, because... Kristen Cole pushing Aegon's rule. Jairus and Ariane are the ones that are going to be making Aegon king. Jairus bringing Quentin's bones home pushes them to that edge of that decision, which it's all but made up by Ariane, uh, I would say. I mean, it, 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 she likes pretty boys. She gonna like this one. It's just in the cards, you know? Yeah. So I think Dorne is going to look at this as kind of a breaking of guest right and safe passage. Quentin's bones... Charred and returned to Doran will completely burn that bridge, no pun intended, from Danny to Martell. Intended. <laughs> intended. In a way, I guess I wouldn't really call it like the Dornish Red Wedding, but in level of betrayal that will be felt, it's kind of similar. Like, if anything, with your parallel earlier from the Martells and the Starks and the North Remembers and the South Remembers, I mean, the Dornish Red Wedding would have been the sack, obviously of King's Landing, mm -hmm. and now every event with every loss of Oberyn, just like how, you know, Bran and Rickon are dead, and then the Red Wedding, and then Sansa finds out, you know, this person's dead, that person's dead. It's just these little betrayals, but in level of betrayal, this was a pretty big one. We, the reader, know it's not Danny's fault, but Jairus's tale is already being spun that it was her fault. We see that in Barristan's chapters. The saddest part of Dorne is that, in the end, they will not win. Whether or not they glimpse the throne, get vengeance on the Lannisters, they don't win. Their whole plot is one giant O. It's up in flames. All the justice for Elia was for naught. It also sucks because you can see that to some extent. I mean, Jairus and Archibald, are, they are still young, and they have been on this entire journey, and... They don't have that capacity, especially at this moment, now that their friend and everything that they were working towards has just ended. Like, they don't have that capacity for self-reflection and definitely not for the self-awareness that they need right now to realize that part of why they're pinning so much of it on Danny, and they're not even trying to, like, take any of the blame off of Danny. Like, they're pinning so much of it on Danny, it's because subconsciously they know in many ways that they are at fault. And, like, Barristan points it out, he calls them out on it. Like... You can see throughout the entirety of the Dragon Tamer that Jairus keeps trying to get Quentin to quit and go home, but he doesn't really say it as much outright. He didn't... He's going to feel like maybe he didn't try hard enough. I don't know if he'll know that internally or not. And 
I mean, Archibald didn't try at all. Like, what was fucking Archibald doing? Other, He was definitely enabling Quentin on these plans, and I understand that he's been conditioned to think that's what he's supposed to do, but he wasn't trying to be like, Quentin, this is a bad idea. Like, in the way that an advisor would. Like, Davos does that for Stannis, right? He tells him this is a bad idea. There could even be a few yeah. Ariohota parallels in there with Doran. Sure, exactly, exactly. Because they don't yeah, feel I mean, that it's their place. Step in. Yeah. And Jairus tries to. Yeah, but Quentin um, doesn't As much listen. as he can. And it, maybe if Cletus had been there, he would have listened. But if Cletus had been there, maybe Quentin wouldn't have felt as much pressure to keep going. But there's also, I think, something really poignant in retrospect for Barristan to be the one who's pointing this out to Jairus and Archibald that you're trying to pin this on Danny because your prince just died and you don't want to feel like you're to blame for it because if there's anyone who can relate to that guilt of being unable to keep your ruler alive <laughs> it's Barristan who's just like done that what three times yeah already no as a king's guard and he's dealt with that and so that's why he can say like that's what you're feeling that's why you're doing that but it's wrong agreed agreed so with Quentin removed from the picture unfortunately rip Lol. It also brings up the idea of inheritance in Dorne, uh, which pits us between Ariane and Tristane left. And as we know, Dorne's plan for Ariane right now is to unite with Aegon and find out if he's real. Uh, and this is kind of Dorne's one last hope because Marcella's ear has been chopped off, dude. Like, that's... Uh, Tr- Some Mike Tyson shit, right? Yeah, Tristane and Marcella are doomed, dude. They're doomed. Even if Doran's plans the don't pan out with Ariane, I mean, they can't fall back on that. They can't retreat to the grass on this one. They've already started that war, you know? And of course, A, it's so sad because they were just so precious and cute playing Savas together. But we also know that Marcella is doomed based on Maggie the Frog's prophecy. She didn't do anything to deserve this. No, she just existed, dude. She didn't ask to be incest baby born. Yeah, if she was going to be unexisted in this way, she was better off on not existing at all. Yeah, why couldn't she have been one of the sticky princes, you know? That's true. <laughs> God damn it. Sometimes in life you're a bastard, sometimes you're a sticky prince. Oh, God. <laughs> that brings us to the sand stakes. Um, Yeah, so I think Nim, Tyene, and Obara are definitely doomed. mm -hmm. I could see Sorella living and maybe two or three of the youngest sand snakes, but Sorella may be possibly ruling Dorne. I just, I don't see anyone else surviving, and obviously I don't see Ariane surviving. Let's be real. I think you have, you have a... Ilaria with a bunch of her daughters. I don't know. I don't think Ilaria is going to end up in charge of Dorne, mm-hmm. of course, but she has daughters who. Yeah, like Lareza and Laria and the younger is what I was thinking, but I mean, El- Elia's doomed. Elia Sand. You think Elia Sand's doomed? That's sad. She's there with Arianne, though. She she is there with Arianne, like, I don't know, doing... Guess what? We'll get there in our Winds of Winter chapters episode of Arianne 1 True. and 2 coming in the next uh, month, but as you were. Which I haven't read. <laughs> exactly. Haven't. That's why I'm, like, saying, I'm like, wait it's till you exciting. read. You're gonna... I think you're gonna change your tune. You're gonna be like, oh yeah, bitch doomed. 
I saw a quote or two in the LA Sand wiki just because I was looking that up since a plug for Michael Klarfeld, who's been doing some great maps of Westeros. He did the Iron Islands maps, which Chloe, you're in. Yes, I was a Lannis Harlaw. Indeed, and I guess I'm supposed to be modeling for Elia Sand, so... Yeah, you are. I have to go figure out how we're doing that at some point. They're amazing maps. If you haven't checked them out, definitely check them out. Very fun. And a couple of other people are in them, too. Yeah, Ashea from History of Westeros, Aziz, I mean, LML. Uh, There's lots of different people that have been on these, so definitely check them out. Coming back to Quentin, so we have this issue... Now, there's that inheritance issue, and obviously now it passes to Ariane, she gets what she wants, but she wants a lot more, um, which is going to lead into the fate of Dorne. I think that there's a lot going on here when Quentin talks about how he's not just himself, like Quentin, the Prince of Dorne. He says he is Dorne, and the fate that Quentin gets, I think telegraphs some of what we can expect for the Dornish storyline. Quentin is in many ways very much a metaphor for Dorn, not just in that that political sense, but yeah, what's going to happen? Like, fire and blood is what Quentin says that he came to Meereen for, and that's exactly what Quentin gets. It's what he becomes. It's exactly what Dorn's going to get. This isn't the way that they thought they were going to get it. They were hoping they were going to wield the power of fire and blood, but I mean, that's not how it goes. You can't control fire. That's a big part of one of the themes of the story. You can't always control these elements and passion. And when Quentin Martell says, you know, like, he's chasing after this vengeance for his father. And because of that, he's going to burn. As you pointed out, the Dornish people are burning. He dies. And it's all wrapped up in this, like, recursive mess because Quentin's death, of course, is what opens up that door for Dorne to ally with Fagon because of all of these misunderstandings from Jairus and Archibald and Arian's of course going to like take advantage of some of that and choose Fagon because she's had a taste of what her destiny could have been destiny mm. uh, being Viserys queen and she's not going back we're going to obviously go more into this later but you know this is going to lead to her making that same mistake as Quentin in that Dorne is going to turn their back on one dragon, chase after this other one, and when they lose sight of that other dragon, mistakes are made, and people die. Why would you turn your back on the dragon that has dragons? I know. I know. I'm like, guys, this is so, like... We talked about this Dorne. But both of them make that mistake. Because remember, Tyrion tells tells Fagon, he's like, always keep your dragon close. But he's an 18-year-old boy. Yeah. Arian's pretty, and Arian's got ambitions, and Quentin's a cute boy. And, like, everyone's... Cute. Hormones... Hormones are fucking everything up in Westeros. I think they're fucking it up for you right now. You're like, this person's cute. You're cute. Are you- exactly. Everyone's cute, and it's going to tear everything apart. And next, I want to dig into the relationship in, between Doran and Quentin, sort of like in general, because the driving force and relationship for Quentin's character, it isn't necessarily getting Daenerys. And it's not Arianne, even though 
you know, whom he thinks of, like, once his entire story and only as his sister, which, like, I mean, he couldn't even call his own mother by his name, but, like, whatever, we're gonna get back to that in a second. The driving force in Quentin's story is his father and wanting to, just not wanting to disappoint him when he comes back home. And we hear, actually, a bit throughout a couple of these chapters, like, how Quentin is very much like Doran, he's a little more bookish, but I, I do think that's true. You know, we don't have a Doran POV, but I get the sense that Quentin's POV is in many ways a window into Doran's mindset when it comes to this plan for Dorn's... Oh my god, it must sound so crazy on the other side here. Doran and Dorn all the time. <laughs> and you can see how Doran has been plotting all of these years for vengeance for Elia and her children and just as Quentin thinks that he can't let his father down and that the deaths of his friends cannot be for naught Doran thinks that he can't let down Elia and her children and that their deaths cannot go um without having received justice now that they've lost Oberyn Oberyn has died for all of this they can't let the Red Viper they can't let him have died for nothing. So now they're all caught up in this huge web of, like, vengeance uh, for their family. And Quentin, of course, keeps he still sees himself up until the very end as the hero of his story. And this causes him to think that things have to go according to plan. Because, I mean, like, that's the point of a plan, right? That things happen based on it. And this is very much how Doran seems to think that things will go for him as well. He's Quentin seems to feel fear, uh, but it he falls short of fathoming that idea of failure very clearly. Because, I mean, they've thought it all through, right? So everything's going to work, right? He's the hero. But just as Quentin freezes up when just one detail goes awry, like, oh no, the password isn't Doug. Doug, he said. Like, <laughs> what's Doran going to do when things don't go perfectly? Which is very much what's going to happen when he gets his son's body back. And I mean, we all know how that ended for Quentin. And so, like, Doran's going to make wrong choices and get psyched out. And I don't know. My point is, like, like father, like son. And also a take. And there's not really much to say to explain this. But I mean, what if, as Quentin is like Doran... Malario is like Arian. I do like that. I, I do like that. I think you could be right on that, at least in her storm and angst. Uh, it reminds me of Cersei with what of my wrath. Uh, but, you know, Malario left and she was incapable of living in this feudal society's rules, living with the political stakes of sending your kids off. And Malario today would probably be furious if she knew of what Doran was letting happen or instituting to happen. Uh, I did mention a bit earlier, but I did want to circle back. Like, I don't know if Quentin not calling his mother or sister by name is exactly like maybe I don't know. I don't know if I'd ex how I'd exactly talk about it. That I want to point out, it has been eight years of him living in Ironwood at least, like give or take. And well, yeah, he probably visited Sunspear on a few occasions here and there annually. He spent the majority of eight years away from his family, and Malario, I mean, had left by then. So he became this young man wrought with inferiority complexes to his beautiful, wonderful, strong friends and the family he never sees anymore and was teased relentlessly by as a kid, which is interesting because Ariane has some of the similar experiences with how she feels about herself and how she looked. But 
Quentin being incapable of calling his sister and mom by name title kind of almost fits in with this whole shtick, I would say. Yeah, I just had a thought right now. Oh no. We've been saying for a while that I guess, and I guess it's mostly me, that Quentin's projecting his insecurity about wanting to live up to, like, prove himself to his father onto Daenerys. But what if, what if- it's that he's... You know, we we discussed before that he was bullied, likely by Ariane and the Sand Snakes. What if he's more just wanting to prove himself to them, yeah. and he sees that in Danny, not Doran? I could see something like that, I don't know. but I say it's still Doran is the big thing. I mean, sure, uh, he's the biggest part of it. Yeah, just like maybe on like some some, some subconscious level, maybe. It could also be like, well, mom left us, so I'm trying to make up for that gap. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's mommy issues and daddy issues. Yeah, is my diagnosis. <laughs> that with those mommy issues, you know, yep. Melario left because Doran was fostering Quentin away, and it it makes me think that there should have been a little more closeness there, and that he should perhaps think of his mother more fondly. He thinks of her in this chapter, and he's like, oh, I want to like go there so that. Go visit Norvos. She knows I didn't forget her. Yeah. Like Alanis Harlaw. For me, that just one line where he says, Doran and his Norvoshi wife, like, to me, I assume that's just weird editing. I don't know. I could see that. It just doesn't seem like Malaria was fighting so much as giving in to her lack of rights from mating with a royal, yes, you know? I, there's that, and also... We aren't ever going to find out, I mean, is the important thing, so. I like to hope that maybe Malari's going to appear in the story, but I don't know. Maybe she stepped a little more. Oh my god. You're fired this time. <laughs> You're, you. <laughs> you, I quit <laughs> this time. You won't oh Imagine if Quentin had just chilled out, right? Like, I, I just don't understand to some extent what the urgency was of, like, we have to steal these dragons right now. Like, I know that everything was falling apart in Meereen, but... I don't know, what if he had just chilled out and, like, waited for Danny to get back and, like, why did he have to steal a dragon? Like, why did he think that this is what Danny wanted? Like, what Danny probably would have really wanted. There are many things that Danny, of course, wants, like, for her city to be safe and, like, cure of the disease, etc. But, like, I don't know, what if Quentin had just waited and he, like, helped Barristan hold the city or something, and, like, then Danny comes back and she's like, wow, that was really great, good job, fam, like, I'm super thankful, and she's, of course, like, thank you so much for not bleeding all over my bed and fucking it up, but instead he just, like, loses her dogs and dies and makes a huge bloody mess on her bed, and, like, I don't know, like, women can do that on their own once a month, like... There's a reason we don't do that. There's a reason why you don't let people die in your bed. <laughs> there is. There's a, probably a few reasons why you don't. Like, accountability, susceptibility. Anyways. Also, that would have been the real hero story if he stayed and saved the city to win the queen and kill the bad guys instead of win the queen to have Ooh. the throne. Like Stannis says so artfully in his arc without the queen bits. Uh, the real hero arc would have been more sensible. No, Quentin, no one's made to go steal a dragon. That's how people die. You know, hindsight is very 2020. There were other ways. And now Barrison is going to die in a pool of blood after saving the city, so... That is more of a hero's arc, especially if Quentin had seen it from the same perspective as Daenerys. Like, 
that wanting to ensure that there was a place where people could be free. They had different goals. Yeah, like, sure, they're not his people, but, like, Bearston didn't forge deep ties, but he's like, oh, there are people here that I guess Danny cares about and I should take care of this and hold it for her. And, yeah, if Quentin had chosen that, Instead of him being like, oh, look at all these slaves and Giscari, they're just like roaches. What if we had decided to save them? I mean, if he had been a proactive good ruler. Mm-hmm. But anyway, now he did. Yeah. And other questions is how soon is now by the Smiths about Quentin Martell? I think it is. Ready? Uh, the lyrics are, I am the sun and the air. Of a shyness as criminally vulgar, I am the sun and heir of nothing in particular. But like sun with a U instead of an O, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, but it's also with an O. It's both. It, I mean, in the, song, in the song, it definitely is with an O, but like, it works on multiple <laughs> yep. levels. Yeah, multitudes of Quentin. Yeah, just, I just thought that was a great little Easter egg, you know? It is. Oh, that should... N- never mind, there are copyright issues. and be like, that should be the song we play out with. Never mind. <laughs> No, no, sure can't do that, Fox. <laughs> Matt, pretend we're doing that, dear listeners. This has been... God, this was a heavy episode. I'm, like, heavy-hearted about Quentin right now. We're leaving. We're burying him, I guess. Or are we? We're, we're leaving him on the bed to die. Juicily. <laughs> we're just leaving him there, and he's gonna be that looming presence. He really will be a looming presence, though, in the next few chapters. Yes, absolutely. We're not really burying, burying him because we will be talking about him in yeah. REM chapters. So I guess that's good. We're letting him you know. We get to it's a metaphor. Him. Uh, the bed is the Arian chapters and Quentin is on it bleeding all over. Okay. <laughs> you just had a locust dog moment. Maybe. Right there. Maybe. Maybe. All right. <laughs> Thanks so much, you guys, for listening. Please make sure to subscribe to us on Podbean, on iTunes, on Google Play, on Acast, or on Stitcher. And of course, hit us up on all of these different venues that we have. We are on social media, like on Twitter. Like, give us a tweet. Say something to us and we can chat. Or, like, shoot us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Leave us an iTunes review because, A, I like those, apparently. Uh, Chloe also really likes them, too. She says she doesn't, but she do. Eh, And they also, of course, help people find our podcast. So go do that. Yeah. And of course, don't forget that our Patreon goes live live on the 1st of September. So check it out, patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. If you sign up for a $10 or more tier by September 1st, you will get a special edition Belwas Deserve Better sticker, which is meta because Eliana thinks that her sticker choice deserve better. I mean, they were all good. I, I made great stickers that people would yeah, like in great. general, so... <laughs> They're all the best, especially number two. <laughs> you guys, we will see you on September 7th with our first REN episode. This has been a wonderful time with Quentin. I've been Chloe. You can find me on the internet as at Lies and Arbor 
on Tumblr and Twitter, and also as Drunk Song of Ice and Fire History on Twitter and YouTube. And I have been Eliana. You can find me as Glass Table Girl on the Maester Monthly podcast and on the A Song of Ice and Fire subreddit. Bye. See you next week, guys. Rip Quentin. Oh. <laughs>